Let us pray. Spirit divine, come upon us and settle here as we sit in your word and understand your place in our lives, your call to places that might make us uncomfortable, but show us your love and your grace. And so sit with us, O Lord, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This week in our Lenten series, we arrive finally, finally in the wilderness. It's a place that is not unfamiliar to this season, and one that has always had particular resonance for those who find themselves there. The Hebrews, between slavery and the promised land, Elijah on the run from Queen Jezebel, John, who quite frankly seemed to prefer it, Jesus, who went there to engage the powers of temptation, and here today before any of these, their ancestors, Hagar, the woman who, dependent upon her usefulness throughout this story, is either named or called by her function, slave girl, and Ishmael, the firstborn, the primogenitor of Abraham. They were sent, not by God, as many of those who came after were, but by Abram and Sarah, cast out or set free into what they could only assume would be certain death. Here we arrive at this table in the fourth week of Lent, and instead of those loaves and fishes feeding thousands, instead of the poor being brought inside for a great feast, instead of a warm welcome of friends, we find jealousy and closely guarded privilege and despair. This is not Hagar's first sojourn into the wilderness. Her story, it seems, is bracketed by this place. Enslaved as she was with no agency of her own, Hagar was given by her mistress to her master, Abram, out of desperation for a child, an heir. It's a story as despicable as it is common, often sloppily written off in Christian interpretive history as a failing of Sarah's alone. Not willing to rely on God's promises, so it goes. And so she took things into her own hands. Thank goodness Abraham had no part in that. <laughs> Regretful and immediately concerned that following this, Hagar looked with contempt upon her. Sarai took it out on the girl. And so she fled, seeking safety into the wilderness. There, an angel appeared to Hagar, urging her to return, but also offering promises that mirror those given to Abram and Sarah of many nations that would come from her. Curious. It was, in fact, the very first enunciation in Scripture. Before Hannah, the mother of Eli, before Elizabeth, the mother of John, 
before Mary, the mother of Jesus. Before them all, it was Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, the boy whose name means God hears, because God had heard her cries and given heed to her affliction. And in response, she is the first woman in the Bible to give God a name, El Roy, the God who sees. So she returns to Sarai and Abram and bears them a son, and so she returns to servitude until a time again where she found herself in the wilderness. It's different this time, but with another first. She is the first in scripture to be recorded as weeping. Truthfully, it's one of these stories that is difficult for us. It confuses us. A little bit too much raw humanity. And really, in and of itself, it adds but a small note a small stone to impede the overall current of salvation history as we know it that flows on from here. From Abraham to Isaac to Joseph and so on, generation after generation to Jesus, as we read in the genealogy of Matthew's gospel. This is the promise as it was made from Ab to Abram in the beginning. Why complicate it with this story? And yet, to stand in its witness, even still to be made a little uncomfortable by its persistence, is to notice, perhaps, that God refuses to narrow salvation to a chosen few. And perhaps even further, God's saving works are not beholden by our ability to understand them. The Bible is not good propaganda, or so insists the Reverend Debbie Blue as she begins a reflection on Hagar's story. Her prompt for writing now nearly 10 years ago in 2014 was a Pew Research study released that year, finding that an increasing share of the public believed that Islam was more likely than other religions to encourage violence among its believers. It is a belief that persists According to follow-up studies in 2017, 2019, and 2021, finding further that over the 20 years of this study, which began in 2001, a notable partisan divide has emerged on these questions. In 2014, concerned for this trend, Blue was writing to urge Christians to read Hagar's story anew, in light of the connectivity that this story has across the three Abrahamic traditions. Further, it was to understand that this text has for many years had resonance in the African-American Christian church, deepened by womanist theologies whose work places the religious and moral perspectives of black women at its center. Here, in this story, is an extension of our own tradition that centers the experience of oppressed communities, and we find the root of Islam. Abraham, 
to Ishmael, and on and on, generation after generation, to Adnan, ancestor of the prophet Muhammad. Here, Hagar's story has something to say that white Christian spaces have historically minimized or relayed in ways that undermine it, hardening stereotypes we can't quite seem to let go. The truth is, or I wonder, along with our questions of this text, might there also be some shame that comes to the fore in highlighting such stories as part of our larger witness of faith. Like those who can never bring ourselves to acknowledge confusing parts of our genealogy, it does not allow us to ease it does not allow us ease in the comfort of a clean lineage, but confronts us with honest suffering. Reverend Blue offers up an assurance, though, in the midst of this, that there is space for this story in the midst of our own. She says the Bible's heroes often lie, steal, and drink too much, Institutions are established and then undermined by counter-narratives that expose their corruption. Seeds for the undoing of the official narratives are always being planted. Stories are told and then revised. The people of God are condemned and redeemed. The Bible is not a slick promotional tool for a nation or an institution or even a particular set of beliefs. As much as it is a witness to a God who is profoundly alive and always a little outside of the sphere of our knowledge. This is perhaps the most frightening and assuring thing that we learn about God when we allow that the story of salvation is messy, that there is no pinpoint we can place upon God. No set of rules that we determine and by which God acts. Rather, God defies our tidy expectations and causes us to reevaluate our assumptions. God's abundance refuses our scarcity. It's the rule of love by which God lives. It is not our rule, it is God's, and it transgresses our desires to keep firm boundaries. God always seems to be working more than just a little outside of, but rather significantly outside of the sphere of what we know. Embracing this, the uncertainty and the discomfort, even for many of us, who think we do this well. Imagine how it offers the possibility of gaining not only more insight into God, but into one another. Imagine that shame and fear are out in the open, acknowledged and offered up, perhaps forgiven, and in their place there is space for something else something more life-giving for all.
The gifts of this story of Hagar as we know it are her interactions with God. God sees her. God hears her child crying out. God gives them both life and freedom through generations that follow. In fact, it is for this very reason that Hagar has been appropriated by African-American writers, theologians, academics, and poets for over 200 years. Her story speaks something true to their experience in this country, something of her ability to endure, of God's ability to save, even when life is bracketed by the wilderness. And two, did you know that in the Quran, when in the wilderness, Hagar still acts? She ran back and forth between two hills seven times, desperately looking for water. Witnessing his mother frantic, and after the seventh time, Ishmael kicks the ground with his heel and a well springs up. It's called the Zamzam well, and Muslims visit it when they make their pilgrimage to Mecca. Indeed, it is part of this pilgrimage to reenact the grief of Hagar, running seven times between the hills and then drinking from the well. Those that are most knowledgeable of interfaith relationships and intercultural ones, too, will remind us that it is both the shared stories and the unique and deepest held beliefs that we have, no matter how different these are, that are the most fruitful to building our shared understanding. It is in our vulnerability to be curious, in our humility to let go of self-righteousness, that we practice the rule of love that God shows us. This year, on or around March 23rd, the 30 days of Ramadan will begin for Muslims around the world. The date beginning this most holy time of the Islamic calendar is set each year when the crescent moon is first seen over Mecca. For believers, it is a time of remembering 1,400 years ago when it is believed that the first verses of the Quran were revealed to the prophet Muhammad, of disciplining oneself in prayer, fasting, reflection, and community in order to gain a greater consciousness of God. This year, on the evening of April 5th, the eight days of Passover will begin for Jews around the world. The date beginning this most holy time of the Jewish calendar is set each year on the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, the first month of Aviv, which is spring. For believers, this is a time of remembrance and celebration of making the escape from slavery in Egypt and passage to the Promised Land. It celebrates the birth of a nation and looks ahead to the promise of a coming Messiah. This year on April 2nd, Holy Week will begin for Christians around the world, culminating in the Feast of the Resurrection, Easter Day, the date beginning this most holy time of the Christian calendar is set each year on the first Sunday after the first full moon of the equinox. Of course, we know this one best. That is the time when we will celebrate the mystery 
of the resurrection of Jesus, God who came to be with us, who defeats death and reconciles all creation with God, kicking off the future kingdom of God. Over these next weeks, the descendants of Abram and Sarah, Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael, will with our own traditions and beliefs be seeking God. We will be remembering God's faithfulness and we will be leaning into our shared life together. Our overlapping stories remind us that God meets us in joy and in despair, in life and in death, in wilderness, and at tables prepared for us there. Whether it is sitting down to a table once the sun has set to break the day's fast, or prompting the youngest at the Seder table with the important question she gets to ask of the whole assemblage gathered there, or passing a common loaf and a cup around a table, the bread of life and the cup of salvation. However we speak of God's name or do not, we are all grasping for the promise that God sees, that God hears the cries of the suffering, and that God leads God's people to freedom. It is God who calls us into the messiness of this human life to live by the rule of love. May we do so faithfully and with understanding. Amen.